42 to Doomsday. I'm Rob. And I'm Dave. And uh, today uh, we're flying uh, without Mark. Mark, again, is somewhere in uh, deepest, darkest Wigan, I'm sure. Uh, and we'll, uh, we'll have him back on on the next episode. But today uh, I'm speaking with Dave uh, at his uh, fortress of, uh, well, contemplation, really, <laughs> more than solitude than anything else. We're going to be talking about uh, Doctor Who uh, politics, politics in Doctor Who, how Doctor Who has uh, reflected politics in the UK during the course of its history. But before we do that, we're going to be talking about Dave's trip to the mother country and uh, his visit of uh, a few uh, well-known Doctor Who sites. All right, Dave. Welcome to the show. Good to be back. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Um, we might be nibbling on some chips later on. Who, who knows? Now, um, as, as I said at the start, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who and, uh, and, and politics. But before we get into the heavy stuff, as you uh, said uh, when we were here for our Christmas episode... Um, you went to uh, the UK uh, at around Christmas time. How was that? It was it was a very good trip, thank you. Um, good chance to get away, see a bit of my family, and um, spend New Year's in London, which was kind of cool to see the London fireworks on the Thames, um, and actually have a Christmas in the Northern Hemisphere, which I've never done before, which means I get to see a Doctor Who episode go out live on the BBC. Now, um, well, let's, let's talk about the Christmas episode. Yes. Um, you were quite excited to be seeing an episode live, as it were, um, the Husbands of Riversong might not quite be a case of Androzani or... Uh, it, it definitely wasn't the case of Androzani. <laughs> what did you think of, uh, of, of the Christmas episode? I didn't year? mind it. I, I thought that it was kind of fun. Look, there were some naff moments, but it was a fun episode. I have to say, what I'd always suspected to be the case was true. When you've just had a full Northern Hemisphere Christmas lunch few drinks and you're sitting down in the afternoon on a cold winter's night it's exactly what you want in contrast to australia where it comes in on boxing day you're tired you're hungover it's 40 degrees you've just watched the test match and you're not in the mood to watch something silly so in context i thought the christmas episode was much much more relevant and enjoyable than i'd ever found it out here i got it a lot more seeing it that way Interesting because I heard a listened to a review yesterday of it and uh, it was very effusive of the episode. I must confess that I've I've still not watched it. I, I, I jumped through it um, and didn't particularly enjoy what I was seeing. But maybe that's a reaction to uh, just having River Song in an episode. The one, the one interesting point that I'll make though is there's stuff that even me as a fan missed watching it. And it wasn't until I listened to other reviews where they've gone, "Oh, do you pick up where stuff like the Doctor gave her a sonic screwdriver?" That's meant to be a reference back to silence in the library or, or, or something. It's meant to be, yes. Yeah, this was stuff that went over my head as a fan. Mm. So for, imagine for most casual viewers, it would have gone over their household. Mm. So, yeah. And, and what do you... It's it sort of come out uh, since or just before that uh, this was meant to be Moffat's last episode. Yes. Uh, did you get any hint from that, that this is maybe sort of his last bow? If it was, I could imagine that last scene of Capaldi and River on the balcony of the Casa Rosada or whatever it was um, as being kind of Moffat's you know, cities made of smoke and people made of song and speech. I think it would have had that sort of tone of a loving goodbye. And I think it would have actually quite worked well for for Moffat if it had been. But it's not. (laughs) And so we have uh, another 18 months to look forward to I suppose. I, I just hope his heart's in the next 18 months. It's not a labour of of contractual obligation. Yes. Well, we might as well touch on that. Um, what do you think of uh, the announcement that, that Moffat was leaving and that Chibnall is his replacement? I, I know that you've expressed 
strong opinions on that? Look, I, I think the way it was spun was actually quite condescending. This idea that, well, we need to give Moffat a proper national send-off. I haven't heard anything like that since the Tony Blair memo leak. You know, we have to have this worldwide send-off and everyone has to be crying that Tony's leaving Downing Street. It was that sort of just ridiculousness that um, got me. If, the, if there's not going to be Doctor Who for 16 months, just say that. Because if the BBC wants to do Doctor Who, it is not outside the budget and the wit of the BBC to make Doctor Who. Now, if they're not making Doctor Who, they're spending their budget and their wit somewhere else. That's an entirely valid commercial decision. But don't treat us like mugs and say, oh, well, we can't do this and we can't do this and we're having a rest and it's to celebrate this. Just say you're not making it this season. You've got other priorities. Just just be honest. Is Why would the BBC take that approach? Is, is, is there a need that they have a need to sugarcoat everything? I think it's just the age that we live in now. Everybody has the corporate spin gurus and the brand managers and the PR advisors and they can't help themselves. It's just a TV show. And the, the, the funny thing is that the consumers of that spin, we're not blind to it. We, we understand exactly. Yes. It's not like the 70s or the 80s where we don't understand how that sort of thing works. Yes. Why would they still pursue, a, you know, run down that blind alley? I, I can only assume because somebody made a bad call. I, I don't think they would actually deliberately have done it if they'd realised how much it would sink. And, and possibly, given that... Cardiff is notorious for leaking like a sieve. It's possible that it was done a bit on the fly because something was leaking out and they had to do a quick one before it hit the papers. I don't know. But that might explain why it was so hasty and unplanned, really. Okay. Um, Now, it's admittedly, it's folly looking so far ahead. Um, But we're Doctor Who fans and we all have an opinion about something. Yes. Any thoughts on Chibnall and perhaps his approach or is it just too early? I, I think... It's, it's not only too early, but we don't have anything like the information. I mean, we've seen Chibnall's written a couple of episodes of Who, a few episodes of Torchwood. Some were good, some were less good. Outside of that, I don't think I've watched anything that he's written for television. I can't think of anything I've seen. So what would we base it on? And, you know, at the same time, if you said Stephen Moffat's going to produce Doctor Who, all I've seen of his work before is Press Gang. That doesn't inform how Doctor Who's going to be. Or watching Queer as Folk doesn't tell you what RTD's area of Doctor Who's going to be. So I think we just can't predict. Chibnall will have some ideas, the BBC will have their own ideas, and we'll just see what it is. Um, You've said to uh, me and others in the past that um, Doctor Who, would, the new series, would sort of finish after about seven years, seven or eight years. That was my initial prediction, yes. And look, based on... Um, had modern TV is done yes, today. Exactly. That's, that wasn't an, an incorrect prediction. No, and it wasn't a, a, a malicious prediction. No. It was just a, a, a realistic expectation. So, uh, clearly, you know, the BBC sees, even though the scheduling of it last year was pretty ordinary, but, uh, Doctor Who has, been, uh, has a flagship show. Does taking on someone like Chibnall indicate to you, I mean, a man who's had a you know, very successful last couple of years with Broadchurch, that the BBC is locking into Doctor Who in, at least in the medium term. Yeah, I, th- I think it has to. I think you don't go and hire somebody that far out and of that sort of profile unless you're committing to the series. Now, what that commitment looks like, I think, is probably the more interesting question. Um, there, there, there's no doubt that the overnights for the last series were down. And I fully get the argument that you can't just look at overnights for the success of a series, but for a linchpin, keystone, Saturday evening series... Overnights actually do matter, I think. Uh, that's when the BBC actually wants people watching 
TV. So, will Doctor Who continue as your prime linchpin Saturday show? I'm less sure. It could be, go more to a Thursday sort of show or a Tuesday show, maybe with a slightly different take and audience. And something else comes in to be the linchpin for Saturday night. That, that's just speculation, but I think that's probably the more interesting change of direction, potentially, than um, anything else we can speculate at the moment. And just on uh, Peter Capaldi, uh, there's been a couple of reports in the last couple of weeks. No, I might not be you know, staying on after Moffat, but recently, yes, I might be staying on. Any thoughts about um, Capaldi, say, for instance, staying on with Chibnall? Uh, well, my, my first thought when I heard that was this was a opening gambit of a contract negotiation, you know, <laughs> trying to make sure that um, his price is, price is worth, well, look, I could stay, but you'd have to offer me the right money, um, which is fair enough. Look, it, it, I think it entirely comes down to what Chibnall wants. If Chibnall's got his own idea of a different type of doctor, maybe a specific actor in mind, then I'll be sorry to lose capacity, but I'd want to see Chibnall deliver his vision with his guy mm. uh, rather than see it compromise and trying to fit what is essentially Moffat's guy into his own idea. Yeah. If Chibnall's very happy to work with Capaldi and can see a way to do that, that would be the best of both worlds. Mm. But I would not be upset at all if Chibnall had a new direction he wanted to go in. And, and as far back as Sylvester McCoy, uh, I remember him saying in an interview that he reckoned that season 27 would have been his last, not because he would have wanted to go, but he would have understood that whoever replaced J&T, had they gone to a 27th series, would again want to have their own Doctor and their own plot. J&T himself, I mean, we all know what happened with Tom Baker. Mm. Um, that's just the way it works, and I think that's acceptable. Every new man wants to put their own stamp on it. Yeah, absolutely. And the show, if it's going to succeed, needs to have that sort of change on a regular basis. Mm. Okay, fair enough. All right, well, we'll move away from... Um, you know the ins and outs and the, the minutiae of, uh, of TV production. Um, whilst you're uh, over in the UK, you've uh, you've gone and visited some um, well-known Doctor Who sites. You've gone a bit of a uh, bit of uh, sightseeing. I, I, I did. Um, essentially, I looked at where I was going to go elsewhere for other reasons in the UK, and found some Doctor Who sites in between that could break up the journey. One of which I've wanted to get to for several trips now. I've never been down south to do it. Was uh, Devil's End, the village of Allbourne, and I've got to tell you. It was a fantastic experience. This, you know, the demons, whether you think it's a great story or not, I personally love it, but it is such an iconic representation of the Pertwee years that we've all grown up with. And suddenly to be standing on the village green, looking at the church, looking across at the, the pub, which still has the um, cloven hoof sign out the front that they used in the series, was a really weird but kind of wonderful moment. I really enjoyed it, but tiny, tiny village. Like, I sort of set course for the village and thought I'd have to drive around a bit to find this big village green in the church. You, you, you drive in, it's, it's, it's there. There's the church, the green, about 14 houses, a shop, and that's about it. Okay. So it's a really, really tiny little place. But it, it looks like it looked in 1972, 71, whenever it was. Yeah, hasn't changed at all. Hasn't changed at all. Is there any indication that the locals... It's a long time ago now, but is there any indication that the locals trade off of that at all? Uh, there, there's no doubt that the pub had some memorabilia behind the bar and knew all that. And I must admit, at all the places I visited, I did have that feeling that you know locals might be looking out the window going, oh, there's another Doctor Who fan. <laughs> so, I did have it there, but that was really good. Um, then the next day I got to Oldbourne, which was, sorry, not Oldbourne, uh, East Hagbourne, where uh, the Android Invasion was filmed. Ah. A- and again... That hasn't changed. The, the, the stone cross that Tom Baker was tied to was still there. The Fleur de Lis pub was 
still there just as it is in the show and mm-hmm. again smaller than you expected but just really cool to kind of see and the really eerie one that I went to was I stopped at the Rollwright Stones which were the Stones of Blood now I drove past that the first time even though I had the GPS on I was keeping an eye out for them I drove straight past it went another mile before realising I must have gone past they are so well hidden tiny little gate in the hedges and then you walk out into this field and there are the Stones of Blood again exactly as they were when they were filmed nobody there quiet um you've got the road and the hedges on one side the other side you've got this wonderful sweeping view of um just the rolling english countryside Mm -hmm. and this was the middle of winter so there was the the rain clouds coming in and really really beautiful but yeah again just standing there looking at the augury (laughs) even as a 35 year old man there was a little bit of frisson yes just a bit of a chill yeah so it was it was very cool and of course I was in London and I, I, I really want to know if British fans in London get the same sense of excitement we do when we go over and say oh Piccadilly Circus that was from the Web of Fear or Marble Arch Station that's from the Mysterious Planet or whether they're just used to it mm. and don't acknowledge it all and you know you, you walk across Westminster Bridge and suddenly you're in the Dalek invasion of Earth and sadly the steps outside St Paul's Cathedral are now a bit of a ramp oh, <laughs> unfortunately really? political correctness gone mad that's right that's right but you can still get that same view but yeah it it, it was kind of cool i'm glad that i um i was able to do it and see it for a heavily urbanized nation like england it is still uh the countryside is still a, very much an evocative place isn't it I mean, yeah, you're standing it, there in uh at rollride stone and you said you had that yeah that, that, that creepy factor it, it really is and even just driving to these villages because you you pull off the motorway and you're on to miles and miles of sort of one and a half lane stretches of country road with ridiculous speed limits that I wouldn't have dared <laughs> gone near um, because they are literally country roads, tiny little things, networking through the countryside. Then you hit a village and then you hit the countryside again. Then there's another village that looks almost the same. And off the motorways outside of the big cities, England just feels like it hasn't changed for probably a century or more. Yeah. And... Um before we move away from that to our main topic, uh, is there the place that you would like to go to? If you had, if you had the time to, to get there, what place that featured Doctor Who would you, in the UK would you like to go to visit? Or have you already done it? Yeah, I actually reckon Oldbourne would have, would be, would have been number one on the list. Mm-hmm. Um, Westminster Bridge, obviously, but you go there anyway. But yeah. if, if the outside ones, yeah, I think Devil's End was, was number one. And it's also interesting, you occasionally go to places that weren't actually in the filming of Doctor Who but the setting so mm. I've been to Culloden Moor for example um, and obviously the Highlanders wasn't filmed at the real Culloden Moor but again you get that sense of it's a piece of history you've kind of been introduced to via Who and so that adds to the sense of excitement when you see it. Excellent, excellent. Alright then, so that was Dave's trip to the UK, uh, everyone should go to the UK at least once. I've been four times now, so I'm sure I'll be back. I've only been once, but uh, that's by the by. All right, on the other side of the break, uh, we'll go on to our main topic, which is Doctor Who and politics. Cue the music. The main topic uh, today, uh, we'll be discussing how Doctor Who depicts politics, how Doctor Doctor Who reflects politics in the UK. Um, Now, the reason Dave is on the show, uh, Dave, as I think we've mentioned before, his career is in politics. Dave works, uh, has worked in the public service and is also works for a, a political party here in Victoria. We won't go into particulars, 
But uh, Dave speaks from a viewpoint of someone in the trenches, uh, has you know dealt with policy, has worked with policy, has worked on political campaigns. Isn't that right, Dave? Yeah, look, I've, I've been in ministerial offices giving advice. I've been in shadow ministerial offices giving advice. So, yeah, I've... I've, I've been somewhere between Matt Smith's character in Party Animals and Peter Capaldi's character in The Thick of It. Mm-hmm. Somewhere in between there has been my, my, my career. Excellent. And, years. and we both studied politics at universities. Yeah, yeah, be yes, right. And, yes. and history as well. So uh, for myself, I've always been a keen, uh, very, very amateur student of, of, of politics and I still follow it today. I do work for the government, so I have a little bit of a little uh, bit of knowledge about how that how that all goes, but we've got Dave on. Of course, Sir Robert. Yes, thank you. <laughs> yes, Ministerish. Um, we've got Dave specifically on because of his knowledge of how it works and uh, how it doesn't work, and what you know, and his uh, his keenness in following Doctor Who. So, Dave, is Doctor Who a political show? The the, the short answer to that is obviously no. In that. If you are making a show for a mass audience of, you know, back in the day, 10 million, 8 million viewers, or even now, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8 million, somewhere in that audience is going to be people of every political persuasion. So you're not going to aim the show at left-wing people or right-wing people or whatever. That said, when you dig down, in a lot of Doctor Who, you can see the ideas of the production team or the writers or the BBC, or society at the time, reflected. And I think when I look at some of the points we're going to cover, you know, you, you look at the tone of stuff in the 1960s compared to the tone of stuff in the last couple of years, that actually, I think, shows, quite interestingly, the change in attitudes amongst the British establishment and amongst the BBC and creative types to, the, to, to various different things in society. So who really does... Uh, measure it's kind of like one of those ice cores you have in Antarctica that tell you you know all about the different environmental things that have happened over time who is a nice little strata of Doctor Who uh, of British culture over 56 three, 50, how many years 53 years 53 years 53 yes. years yeah alright then so um, the structure of our discussion will be well you know like other dis- discussions Doctor Who such a long history will start from the beginning and come up to today yeah no timey-wimey stuff today no 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 now as you said, I mean, Doctor Who couldn't be an, an overtly political program. It, it, the BBC, it wouldn't have allowed itself to be something no, like that. No. And as you've said before, I think the drama always comes first and anything else that filters through is pushed by um, the production team. Yeah, absolutely. But at the same time, you look at the Britain in the 60s and the British establishment is, is, is wonderful at spotting a new piece of innovation and making it theirs in a way that we don't do so much in Australia and certainly not in the US. So, you know, when radio starts, the establishment goes, oh, this is very interesting. We'll create a nice public service structure around it to make it part of us. Television comes up, oh, well, we'll embrace that ourselves and we'll make that part of us. And it's fascinating. I'm sure you've read the um, history of the Cambridge Spies back in the 50s. And they saw, you know, ingratiating themselves into the Foreign Office, MI5 and the BBC all as being part of one homogenous establishment in a way that it's not out here. So the BBC really is part of that mm-hmm. in the 60s when Who's coming out. And you see that in its educational remit and you see that in the messages that it has. And, you, you know, you can't separate that from television in the 60s. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, um, every era of Doctor Who reflects the era, you know, that just come before or the current yes, era. Yes, yes. Now, the Hartnell era... Um, 
is reflective of that generation that grew up in the 30s and lived through the war. Yes. And we can see that, especially with Terry, Terry Nation, who is, throughout his career, completely obsessed with the idea of fascism and racism. Yes, yes. All his work, yeah. It is very much, isn't it? So is the 60s, in a, in a sense, a reflection of the, of the experience in the 30s and 40s? Yeah, look, I think, I think it has to be. I think, let's face it, anybody who lived through those six years of World War II, you know, and it's not just sending people off to fight, although that was traumatic itself, but, you know, people in London lived with the Battle of Britain, rationing, death, mm. for six years. Yeah. So even if you were three or four at the start of that and you grew up with that, or whether you were a teenager who's now in your 20s working behind the cameras, or you're a writer-like nation, or Whitaker or something, that's got to be deep, deep in your marrow. Mm. And so you look at something like the Daleks, as you said, there's very clear fascist um, uh, tones there and allegories there. Right down to Ian's speech to Aladon in uh, episode five, where he threatens to take Dione off and to the Daleks and provokes Aladon to striking him and says there are some things worth fighting for, is very clearly shaped by the experience of appeasement under Chamberlain. You know, it, it's a direct reflection of that. And of course, in the Dark Invasion of Earth, you get to see... Um, an occupied Britain, which again is another almost cliched by now trope of, of fiction, but at that stage was not done so much. So you can see them sort of going, this, this is what happens if you, if you give in to fascism. It's interesting because the 60s, uh, you saw the rise, um, the, the clash between that older worldview, um, the, the, the kids who sort of in the late 60s who, who embraced sort of pacifism and peace and, and, and yes. anti Vietnam War uh, syndrome. There's that clash between the older view of the people who grew up in the 30s and 40s and their kids' generation. There, there is, but less so in Britain. I think when you see stuff in Britain that's set now in the 60s, and it's it's lots of, um, you know, it's the Beatles, it's flower power, uh, the rise of marijuana, the rise of the youth culture, and, and, and yes, a, a generational gap, but sort of the older generation just sort of looking down with a half smile going, oh, look at the young kids today, and it's all lovely. You contrast that with anything set in the US at the same time, and it's just bleak. Mm. You know, it's bleak, it's nasty. Um, you know, the, the, the Beatles film um, Across the Universe, or the song featuring Beatles songs, set at that time, is just an unrelentingly grim film as you have the civil rights riots, you have people going off to war. Um, something like The Wonder Years. I mean, episode one of The Wonder Years, um, Winnie's brother is killed in action in Vietnam. That's, that's the start of the series. So Britain doesn't have that. So there's this almost soft changing of the guard. Mm. Compared to the US where it was a very violent changing of the guard. So you look at Star Trek in the late 60s and that's heavily political. And there's multiple episodes that are clear Cold War allegories. Like the Klingons are the Russians. Completely undisguised. And you have episodes where, you know, there's one episode where the Federation comes in to arm one group of decide it's planning and then the Klingons come in and arm the other group and suddenly they're in an arms race and all that sort of thing and it's brutal in your face um, ones. The, the Star Trek episode where they had you know the race of people who are white on one side and black on the other and hate the people who are black on the other side and white on the other. Not even remotely subtle race relations mm. messaging that Britain didn't quite have to cope with in the same way so who I think gets away and I think who is dated better than Trek because of that, you look at Trek now, some episodes you just go, this is so obviously 1968. Yeah. Whereas who has a bit more of a time, it's just about it. 
So you've made the comparison there where, where you know, um, television and movies in, in America in, in, in the 60s and 70s would put the message right in front of your face simply because it was reflective of the bleakish mood at Absolutely, that time. Yep. And Doctor Who was a bit more of a soft approach. But there are some instances where we think anyway that Doctor Who looked at certain uh, important political um, movements such as the anti-colonialist movement. Uh, you've made the point in the past uh, about the Ark, for instance. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I always took the Ark as being uh, a, a soft but very clear anti-colonial story. Because the message that is put in the mouth of the Doctor... And I think we should say at this point, anything where the message is actually put in the mouth of the Doctor rather than supporting character, clearly is the show saying we want to make this a prime message. So when the Doctor himself is the one at the end lecturing the humans going, you need to travel with understanding as well as hope, you need to show tolerance. Um, that to me is actually saying that, you know, if you're going to have a multi-ethnic society, you all have to treat each other well, the humans can't enslave the monoids, the monoids can't enslave the humans. Everyone needs to be equal and non-judgmental and all of that. So I find it fascinating that there's a school of thought in fandom that takes it as a pro-colonial uh, story. Um, and I, I, I can't quite see why. I, I know in part they then take the title of the Celestial Toymaker, take the most sinister and racial uh, use of the word Celestial, and, and then sort of apply that backwards as oh, I just assume celestial meant cosmic. I never looked for a, a hidden meaning there. So I, I don't get where it comes from. I think that at that stage, Doctor Who is very anti-colonial. And you do get that message of understanding and hope and mm. everything. And I, I find that interesting. How, how, do, you, how do you feel? Um, well, I mean, if, if I think about, say, the Hartnell era, the, the, you look at Hartnell, it's, it's hard sometimes to divorce... William Hartnell, the man and his alleged politics. Yes. Uh, from the perspective that the first Doctor gives to the world. I mean, he's a citizen of the universe. That, yeah. So that indicates uh, a more wide viewpoint in terms of his personal yes. outlook on, on the world and some a narrow view. And, and then some people think that the Doctor is a, is, a, is a conservative figure, or the Hartnell Doctor is more a conservative mm. figure because there's a sort of you know, paternalistic attitude. But when you say things like uh, the speech he gives in the Ark, it's, it's, a, it's a liberal it's a liberal viewpoint on the world, isn't it? It, it is. So there's a, there's a message yeah. of tolerance there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, he says something again at the end of the Daleks when he gives his advice to um, Aladon and the Thals at the end. So I think that there is that quite um, classical liberal sort of view coming through there that I don't think is arch-conservative at all. No, that's right. Interesting. Um, are there any other aspects of the Hartnell era that you want to look at? I think the only other vaguely interesting one is just to mention the war games where the Doctor rocks up and suddenly he's just chatting to the, you know, Sir Charles or whoever it is and they just go, oh, hello Doctor, how are you? Well, hello Sir Charles, let's get on with dealing with this problem and he works with the army and there's actually, the Doctor fits really well into that establishment which I think again reflects the fact that Doctor Who itself seated very neatly with the establishment as a nice, warm, educational, reassuring, middle class mm. show. And that was the war machines you're referring to. The war machines, yeah. Yes. Okay. There, there is that because it, 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 that particular story and that aspect of it seems like it doesn't fit within the Hartnell era. That he, he is an he, for some for that story he's an establishment figure. Yes. Almost like a Pertwee, it's Pertwee-esque, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Even more so than Pertwee in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. he's very hand in glove, isn't he? Very, very much so. Um, and there's there's no tedious. Well, how do we know who you are and why should we listen to you? They just get on with it. Yeah. So, 
Excuse which is probably just a function of good storytelling more than anything else. Yes, I think they, they, they just cut that out. Yeah. Um, Get but, to the important bit before the... Uh, that's right, but, but you know, we're analysing it 50 years later. And <laughs> well, that's what Doctor Who fans do, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. So I think we can safely leave the Hartnell era behind for yes, a moment. Yes, yes. So we move into the Troughton years where, if I was going to give my five-cent analysis, it, it's more reflective of the 60s uh, than anything else, that you have a more, quote-unquote, bohemian figure yes. in Hartnell who's less... Well, he's more anarchic in a, in a sense. And the Doctor becomes this figure that looks to right wrongs and tear down uh, you know, terrible regimes. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing about the Troughton era is that, you know, it's called the Monster Era for a reason. And if you decide to take a show down a path of fighting alien monsters and removing yourself from Earth in the way that it does, uh, to a slightly greater extent, then uh, I I think that inevitably you don't get the same sort of allegory or references that you get in the Hartnell era. The Doctor fighting Ice Warriors is just the Doctor fighting Ice Warriors. The Doctor fighting Cybermen is the Doctor fighting Cybermen. There isn't that same sense of visiting Earth, visiting history, sort of plaguing the way through it. But what it does do is depict uh, a, a projected future Earth. And that tells you a lot about the optimism of the 60s. You know, mm. you go back, whether it's the moon base or the wheel in space, the Ice Warriors, they have this comfortable, multi-ethnic... Um, Organisation. I mean, you know, you had Russians on the wheel in space, you had Frenchmen on the moon base, you had the Australian, there was an Australian in the wheel exactly. in space with a terrible accent. <laughs> it, it was, it was J.R. Southall worthy that it had an Australian <laughs> accent. But um, as you say, there's this real feeling of hope and optimism that in, in a generation's time, we're all going to be one humanity, we're all going to be dealing with each other, and we're going to put together space projects together and it's sad to look I mean we are now living in a period what about 10 years away from when stuff like the moon base was meant to be set mm. so we, we are staring down the barrel of that and we're nowhere near it no uh, it was completely and utterly wrong in their predictions it feels more like 2084 with um, the worries of the deep at the moment it, 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 it does than actually it does the moon base. Um, and I suppose looking at the 60s even though there was the Vietnam War there was a the Cold War the, the, the deep fear that embraced the world in the 50s, you know, with the threat of atomic war, the real threat of atomic mm. war, had sort of warmed up a little bit in the 60s. And then it went back in the icebox in the late 70s and early 80s. So that idea that, all right, the, the world is split into competing blocks, still, the United Nations hadn't been completely discredited as an, a dysfunctional organisation. No, and to, to the extent that, you know, the first time we see the Brigadier in charge of UNIT, it is a United Nations organisation. And in the very first story, the invasion, he has to go and call Geneva, which becomes a bit of a running thing yes. through the Perver years. But straight away, it sets up this idea that the UN is going to become even more important, and that you know, the idea that a British one-star officer would go and take his orders from Switzerland mm. is a concept that now, well, now it actually <laughs> in the UK we may touch on this later when we get to the Peloton stuff is very strange, but. It does show just this wonderful optimism that didn't come to pass. Although, you mentioned the nuclear stuff. The Dominators obviously touches on that. And the Dominators is one story that we actually forgot in our planning because, let's face it, it doesn't come to your, front of your mind. It's the Dominators. It's the Dominators. That is the story of, you know, disarm every, the, the, the disarm everybody, be peaceful with everybody, hippies, as portrayed by the Dolcians, yeah. and suddenly the Dominators rock up, what do you do? 
and the message of that story is well unless the doctor turns up you roll over you roll over um, we even if we wanted to fight we can't so we yeah. get conquered it is in in that regard you know just thinking about it it is a fairly scathing critique of uh, pacifism or you know not standing up for yourself with regards because as you say without the doctor they're crushed under the, the, the dominator's heel, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I, I don't think you can take the intended message there any other way. Now, like all bad political allegory, it's so unsubtle and so sledgehammer that it actually doesn't really relate to the real-world situation much at all. But it's no doubt that someone, given the issues with the writing of that story, I don't know whether you can say it's Lincoln and Halsman or it's someone else in the production office. I'm tipping it wasn't Terence Dix. <laughs> Um, but somebody in the production of that show put that very much front and centre um, and it's unusual for who and it stands out I think in the Trouton era as a very strange story it just doesn't feel right partly because it's rubbish <laughs> before, actually before we leave the 60s um, and the 60s is where historicals effectively die uh, a story like sad, sad but true um, a story like The Massacre Yes. Even though it is about religion and religious-based violence, back in the Middle Ages and you know, the early period of the Renaissance, I mean, religion was seen as a way of... It's almost a form of politics, wasn't it? Uh, y- yes. I mean, you certainly would define... What we would now think of as political parties in that era would have been religious factions. Mm. Um, not just the Catholics versus the Protestants, but in the... In, in England, it wasn't the UK, then in England, um, the Puritan faction of the Anglican Church versus the more moderate one. I mean, Elizabeth I spent as much time fighting the Puritan wing of the Anglicans as she did trying to save her head from the Catholics. <laughs> so, you, yeah, the, the, those factions and alignments were very, very religious in France at the time of the massacre, it absolutely was. Mm. You know, it's a fascinating period in well, the, French history. The wars of religion which you know, spilled across... Europe, I've, I've been constantly fascinated by the idea that rulers would deliberately would, would embrace a different you know strand of the of, of the Christian faith simply for political reasons. You'd have yes. men who are who are Catholics would become Protestants not because of any particular re- religious fervor, but because it suited them politically to do so. Absolutely, and, and it's interesting that in in Doctor Who, which becomes an incredibly atheistic show, particularly with Pertwee. For them to deal with something of that nature is very interesting because to the atheist, a Catholic arguing with a Protestant is like somebody arguing whether red dragons are better than green dragons. Yes. You know, it's, it's such an absurd division. Mm-hmm. But who depicts it perhaps effectively because it can take that neutral look at it? I don't know. And I don't know whether the massacre could be done in any other era. Well, I mean, I was just thinking now, I mean, if the story has ever found we're able to watch it, I mean, obviously you've got the audio... Nowadays, in our society, it is agnostic at, at worst. It, it, mm. There's an atheism that runs right through society these days. People are less and less identifying with any particular faith. Would people get something like the massacre now? The, the, the whole idea of a nation at war with itself over religion? I think that people would probably try and see into it aspects of modern religious conflict and actually miss the point. They'll actually not realise that this is a genuine tale of what really happened. Mm. I think it was an allegory of, you know, Christianity versus Islam or something and miss the entire point. Yeah. Or be scared to tell it because it could be interpreted uh, through a modern lens. I think the latter point. Yeah. Anything else. Yeah. It's interesting, um, here in Australia, 
there was a benign conflict between Protestants and Catholics yes. up until, say, the 60s and the sort of the rise of liberalism. Absolutely. Look, I, I can remember my, my dear late grandmother. Um, my sister went to a Baptist school and because it was an all-girls school, they, one year they decided they were going to do their production with um, an all-boys Catholic school. And when my grandmother said, oh, dear, what are the Baptists coming to? You know, doing their production at the Catholic school. <laughs> and, you know, my grandmother was a very tolerant, wonderful person, but she still was of that era where yeah. there was a Catholic-Protestant divide in this country. Mm. And it was political, it was class. It, it went through all strands. I mean, there's the famous story about Sir Donald Bradman being in conflict with, I think, one or two of his teammates. Because yeah, on yeah. one side, there was the Catholic players, or ca- players who were Catholic, and on the one side, there were players who were Protestants. So yeah. it's... Um, Religion serves as a proxy for political discussion and debate sometimes, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And it's, it's weird when you think we're only really a generation and a half removed from that in this country. Yeah. When we are, I, I think surveys back this up, we are one of the most agnostic countries on the planet now. Yes, we worship our iPhones, then we, we go to church on a Sunday. And our football. And our football, well, yes. <laughs> that, that is another religion we could touch on. Bread and circuses, I think, for the masses to keep them happy. But such good bread. <laughs> Uh, so I think before we leave the Troughton era, is there anything to talk about the depiction of the of the Time Lords uh, at the end of the War Games? These austere, authoritative, authoritative Olympian figures who run who run Gallifrey. Is there anything to say about them? Only if you contrast it with what comes later, which I think gives a contrast in the views of society of the establishment in the sixties, when it was still seen as. You know, Mr. Churchill, Mr. Eden, and all of that, to uh, the 70s, where suddenly you start to see a bit behind the curtain, and suddenly the establishment doesn't look quite as in control as it could be. So, yeah, maybe there is a little bit of that, but you wouldn't notice it if you just saw the war games. It's only when you see what happens later with the Time Lords that maybe that depiction does come in, yeah. Okay. So, we leave uh, the 60s, we leave black and white television and embrace colour television, and we brace. Uh, a new decade, the 70s. Before we get into the Pertwee era, let's talk a little bit about uh, how TV changes in the way that it embraces particular uh, styles of storytelling, but particularly issues. Yeah, I think, I think you're right, Rob. Issue-based sto- shows are now becoming much, much more overt. I think there's a bit more television, so there's more scope for that. I think that post-war establishment generation is letting go, and you're starting to see a lot more. And look, I, I just made a note before we came here, Doomwatch starts in 1970, goes to 72. You've got Survivors in 75 to 77. So actually starting to see a much, much more socially aware uh, style of television coming in. But even something like The Good Life, which was, what, late 70s? I think so, yeah. Mid to late 70s. I mean, The Good Life was very much of that time. You know, let's, let's all just grow a vegetable garden and a pig in our backyard and live outside the rat race. Mm, yeah, very much so. It all ended in tragedy, though. <laughs> The pig ate them. No. Um, so, so you put that down to um, just a shift in the, in, the, in the generations, really? Yeah, I think so. I mean, let, let's face it, by 1970, you are 25 years from World War II. So anybody who's really 35 or younger has no personal memory of that experience. Plus, you've also had, you know, the rise of feminism, which is, has a very positive influence on society just these breakdowns in these establishment things and you also start to see the establishment actually not doing a very good job at running the show uh, both in the UK in Australia to a certain extent certainly in the US so this deep deep scepticism really starts to ingrain itself well that's 
at that point in the early 70s, that's the end of that fa- fantastic economic run uh, from yeah, the end of World exactly, War II. Yeah. And uh, so you see, you know, uh, the oil crises, the yes. multiple oil crises, battering government's budgets and uh, bringing governments down. Um, and you see that today after the GFC, that a number of, uh, in the West anyway, that there's, you know, uh, governments have had a tendency to be not as strong, not as, as, as long in, t- in their mm. terms of office because they've been undermined by the effects of the GFC and people's opinion that they're not, you know, in charge, not able to control. Yeah, and, and, and you start to see that in television. You start to see the world as less utopian, less hopeful, slightly scarier. You know, even something like Blake 7, which emerges out of the late 70s, again, emerges out of this sense that society is all sort of going down the drain and it's going to be perhaps a lot more fascistic Mm. or it's going to be a lot more totalitarian. It's going to be a lot more um, survival of the fittest. Um, Star Wars comes out of the same atmosphere in the US. I mean, yeah, so you you start to see this bleaker sort of uh, trope in, in, in the genre. And, and who's on removed from that? No, but uh, and and yet you see you, you do see that in I suppose Pertwee's first year where it is it is a bleaker tone. Yes. Um, than what you would have seen in the late sixties. I mean, the, the so the summer of love has basically curdled and gone sour, and all those hopes and dreams of, of, of that younger generation have been turned to dust, basically. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the Silurians is I've said before is my absolute favourite story ever of Doctor Who. But the ending of that is such a downbeat and such a pragmatic moment where they blow the solar ends up. You know, despite all this hope that maybe we could live together and you know, all, all form peaceful world coexistence, no. Nah. The government is frightened. They blow them up. Um, Inferno. The government made a, a pretty big mistake in backing the Inferno project. Yes. Um, and and I, I always love, though, and, and you would appreciate this as well, being in the public service. Even faced with all that's happening at the end of episode seven of, of Inferno, Sir Keith Gold, the public service, says, "Oh, hang on, I'm I'm not authorised to uh, shut this project down. You'll have to get the paperwork done." <laughs> you know, there, there's Stalin in full prime one mode. The Earth screaming, "Oh, hang on, the paperwork's not done." No, no it must be stamped and countersigned, please. So the seventies, uh, there is that embrace uh, during the Pertwee era of, an, of a number of things. There's, you know, uh, there's the there's the allegation that Pertwee is a bit of a Tory, that, that there's a more bureaucratic aspect to Doctor Who, that he has to work through the establishment. Mm-hmm. Now, you've made the point uh, in your notes, which are very good, that um, during the Pertwee era, we have uh, Malcolm Hulk, we have Barry Letts, and we have Terence Dix. And they come from different points on the political uh, spectrum, don't they? Yeah, look, I mean, there's, I mean, we all know Hulk was a card-carrying socialist, if not communist, mm-hmm. in the gentleman sense of the word. <laughs> Yes. Um, you know, let, let, no, no gulags for, for Malcolm. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, let, let's was more of your British liberal. And, and Terence Dix has said himself that he was a, you know, not a conservative, but just an old-fashioned English Tory. Mm. And so you do, I think, see this uh, balance played out between them that, that, that does call things in. And there's an interview with Terence Dix on the DVD of The Mutants where the writers of that want to go down a very hard anti-colonial path. And Terence, Terence pulled them back in and he said, look, I pulled them back in partly because I didn't disagree with how far they were going personally, but also because they'd started to let the message impact on the story. Yeah. And he didn't actually care about the message. He wanted to have 25 exciting minutes. It's the mutant, so he may not have succeeded in that. <laughs> that <time. laughs> uh, the, the worst story of the Pertwee era, in my view. I know Mark doesn't like Monster Peloton. That's my number two. But 
you know, you can see there a production team that is politically aware, but also balancing and, and making sure that the show is before the politics, mm-hmm. even though they are probably the most politically conscious production team that we had. And that, that's interesting because sometimes you, you think that um, people in the production process want to stamp their own vision on the show to, the, to our show's detriment sometimes. Yeah, look, look. I mean, there's no doubt that Barry Letts had a strong ecological view, and you know, he was at the crest, the, the crest of a wave that is still breaking today. Mm. Uh, so he he definitely ingrains that into his stories. But you look at the Green Death. I would have seen the Green Death when it was repeated at the age of about six. And to, to, to a six-year-old, it's a really fun story with mad computers and giant magnets and flying dragonflies and all, all that sort of stuff. Uh, to the older viewer, it, it, it doesn't carry a message of um, multinational corporations are bad. In, in fact, it actually puts in the brigadier's mouth, and the brigadier's are close to the doctors you can get in the story. You know, right at the start, the brigadier says, oh, hang on, cheap petrol and more of it, just what the world needs. So the counter-argument is being given that we're not saying we don't want petrol, we're not saying we don't want multinational corporations. We're just saying, look, watch out for the excesses. Watch out for what you're sacrificing and, and keep a vigilant eye on these things because if not, the consequences may be giant maggots and world-dominating computers or all the real-life equivalent thereof. Professor Jones is sometimes regarded in that story as being the mirror to the Doctor. Would that be right? Would you... In terms of his almost vehemence in, in his views, yeah, I, I think I think Professor Jones is the character they create to say the things they would like the Doctor to be able to say that the Doctor can't say because they can't have their hero being political. Mm-hmm. So they give a very young reflection of the Doctor all those lines to say with the Doctor nodding sagely in the background um, and the Brigadier providing the counter argument, yep. and and that leaves you not sitting there as a viewer going, oh, this political rubbish, oh, these left-wing buggers, you know, I'm not going to watch the show anymore. It just lets the message sit there and frame the story. Um, and it's backed up, let's face it, with the invasion of the dinosaurs, where um, Hulk, the socialist, is himself going, okay, you guys at the fringe of our movement who actually just want to, you know, wipe out society to save it, Operation Golden Age and all that, are actually going too far. And he sort of, that, the dinosaurs, is that he's warning them to rein it in. And it ends again with, with Perpich's little homily about greed being the real pollution. Now, that's not a political message. It's a politically conscious message, mm. but it's not a partisan political message. And, and, and it's a beautiful little sort of ending to that era. Is it, is it a British thing that extremism is... N- you look at the British political establishment or British politics, and there are very few extremists in their views. I mean, Malcolm Holt, card-carrying socialist, perhaps a communist. Communists, are, you know, are the bad guys, but he's he's not frothing at the mouth. There just doesn't appear to be that sort of strain in British politics. Whereas, if you look at American politics, there are aspects of extremism that are troubling. It yes. just doesn't come into the come into no. The it's it's like that wonderful line from Edward the Seventh when he was Prince of Wales during Victoria's time and. One of his friends said, you know, your Royal Highness, I'm very worried about this growing Republican movement. Prince Fawaz said, yes, look, when they stop ending their meetings with God Save the Queen, I'll start to worry. <laughs> you know, which, which I thought wonderfully summed up that, that genteel sense of extremism, as you say, in, in, in there. And, and it's interesting to contrast what's happening in the US now with the Trump movement 
compared to the anti-EU movement now where, you know, the anti-EU people put Nigel Farage and George Gallagher on the stage and everybody else goes, could, could, could we just get them off the stage, please? They're not helping. Exactly. Um, they, they, the extremists are, you're right, sort of pushed over to the side. Very British. Now, most famously, uh, Paul Cornell, in a, in a review, I think it was, for Terror of the Ordons in DWB, basically uh, tagged uh, Pertwee, or the Pertwee era, as being you know, a, to- a Tory. Uh, sort of, I suppose, that code for very conservative, uh, not liberal at all, not progressive enough. And there's talks about uh, the, the Third Doctor being a very much an establishment figure, very clubbable, you know, dealing with the bureaucracy, that sort of thing. But any comments on that? I, I find it hard to actually bear that out in the contents of the show. In the mind of evil, the Doctor is belligerently anti-capital punishment. You know, he gives a little homily at the start of Mind of Evil about the dangers of all that, and he's there to stop the Keller Machine punishment process happening. In the Sea Devils, the minister who wants to go and bomb the Sea Devils is portrayed as a bit of a fool, and, and Pertwee berates him for his hardline views. So the fact that Pertwee occasionally enjoys a glass of wine and a cigar with the head of the civil service, which, let's face it, if you're stuck on Earth with nothing else to do and you can do that, well, hell, why wouldn't you? <laughs> um, I, I don't think that really is a true reflection on his values. He talks about, you know, being careful about multinational corporations. He talks about pollution. He talks about greed. And, and he is incredibly agnostic. I mean, you look at the, de- the demons is basically religion versus science. And science is the absolute winner of that story. You know, that is itself a very anti-establishment message Mm. that, you know, religion and mysticism and belief and all the rest of that is nonsense. Science, my dear, science. Science is the way to go. Very much so. Um, Is there anything else about the Pertwee era, specifically about the production team, that you'd like to mention before we move on? Uh, I think we should probably mention the planet Peladon. Well, of course. Uh, Very germane uh, as we speak. Go on. Well, look, the Peladon stories have their legend within Who fandom of being political allegories. They are, I think, only to the extent that it is a framing device. Monster certainly. Monster Monster Peladon, I think, struggles full stop. (laughs) It also struggles to to really say that it's a political allegory. You you can say that, to an extent, Curse is... Um, Obviously, at the time, Curse Peladon was made was, I think, the year that Britain went into the EEC, with de Gaulle having finally shuffled off. (laughs) Ted Heath and Pompidou um, having that agreement to to join the EU. And look, the Federation isn't a perfect allegory for the EEC, but it it works. But there's one scene in episode three where Hepish and the Doctor have a moment alone. And in that, the actual EEC debate is essentially carried out. Interestingly, one side of the argument is actually given to the Doctor, which, as I said, is very unusual. So Hepesh talks about how he's frightened, he's worried about his world being exploited, he's worried about his culture and his heritage being lost, which I think are fair reflections of the problems that people saw in going into Europe, of like a loss of Britishness, exploitation, and the rest of it. And the Doctor talks about, well, they're there to support you, they're there to work together... And it's the Doctor who consistently forges this peaceful alliance, you know, making sure the Alpha Centauri gets along with the Ice Warriors, you get along with the Peladonians. So that, that argument is very much played out in that scene. And to give the Doctor one side of an argument that at that stage was very contentious, 
and in two years' time later they'd actually have a referendum on the topic, is a really unusual moment for, for who? It, very, very overt. It doesn't really do that again during the classic era, does it? Not, not... Not to that extent. Not to that extent, no. I mean, even when they get to Monster of Peladon, to the extent that Peladon has miners and they're in a bad mood... <laughs> you miners know, are always in a bad mood, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, like, it, there, there's, there's no real, you know, Arthur Scargill-type character in the miners. There's no um, Ted Heath character in the Peladonians. There's, there's no actual allegory other than, you know, miners are angry. Uh, the Doctor at the end is saying, look, maybe you should be nice to them. And you get that awful feminist speech from um, Sarah Jane to the Queen in episode two, which, you know, if you want to talk about just hammering a political message, that's a very bad example of one. So I don't think Monster really stands out at all. And again, I think it's because the, the, the mining dispute in Britain, both in the 70s and 80s, was complicated. You've got, you know, real microeconomic reform happening. You've got industrial reforms happening over the top of that, ecological reforms on the top of that, long-term economic outlook on the top of that, and then the unions versus the conservatives overarching all of that, and people in the middle of it just trying to make a living. And, you know, you only have to go back to my great-uncles you know, back in the UK. They were all down to pit. So, <laughs> you know, we, we understand that. And to try and deal with something as complicated in an episode of Doctor Who that ends with a bunch of... Martians coming and invading to fight other Martians or something. It's just nuts. Yeah, it's, and it's, I don't think it stands up. It's very much a stretch that uh, the story won't, won't or can't support. No, and look, uh, Brian House, I think, was out of ideas at that stage, yeah. running on steam, and it's yes. just not a good story anyway. Now, before we wrap up the part where you are, uh, you've got a, a, apparently a theory about party politics in, in the Doctor Who universe. Would you care to expound? Well, it's just interesting. You can draw, and, and, and a little bit of this was touched upon in the discontinuity guide as well, but you can kind of draw a nice little neat pattern through it all in that you could imagine if we assume the uh, Labour government was in power in the 60s as they were in the real-life Britain, you then have stuff like the Silurians, Inferno <laughs> happening. Chances are that they will probably lose an election, so the Conservatives come in, on top of which you start to have you know, the Clause of Axos... <laughs> You know, all of these other things, you know, the demons, the master, all happening. So the chances are, at that point, you can imagine a neither mainstream party being very popular. Hence, you get Jeremy Thorpe elected in Prime Minister in The Green Death. Now, as we know, Thorpe not only never became Prime Minister, but um, ended his career in some ignominy. Um, and I still love watching Peter Cook's um, um, judgment sketch about the trial of the trial of Jeremy Thorpe's would-be lover and assassin mm. <laughs> allegedly yes very much allegedly <laughs> what is it a witness who is so incompetent he couldn't even pull off a basic murder plot <laughs> um, you know so obviously Thorpe never happened but you know Barry let's just confirm he intended Thorpe to be the Prime Minister referred to in the Green Death so you can imagine the major parties being so moribund that the Liberals would get him in Doctor Who's England unfortunately that means that Sir Charles Grover from the Invasion of the Dinosaurs would have been a Liberal minister. Now, his main contribution to British society was to fill London with dinosaurs <laughs> and try to wipe out the entire planet. <laughs> Which would indicate to me that the Thorpe government probably wouldn't have lasted very long after that. So I'm thinking if there was a politician in the mid to late 70s that, you know, having everybody having failed, you want somebody hard to look after everything, 
Mrs. Thatcher. <laughs> you can imagine it, those circumstances being very, very successful. So that when the Brigadier has that phone call from the Prime Minister in, Lock, in a, not like Lex Monster, uh, Chair of the Zygons, um, you know, yes, ma'am. Yes, discreet but resolute action, I understand. You can imagine Mrs. Thatcher on the end of that telephone, and you can imagine how she could have got there as well. And I think it just, it actually all comes together really quite neatly, I think. Hmm. Oh, that's fascinating. That's, that's actually quite interesting. That's quite interesting. All right, so John Pertwee doesn't get the pay rise that he demands, and he moves on. Uh, allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> Uh, to greener pastures, and of course, uh, we have well, the bu- literally, literally, oil gummage. Oh, well, that's true. <laughs> we have the Tom Baker era. Now, Hinchcliffe and Holmes bring a new approach, well, a different storytelling approach, yeah. different stories. Yeah. And we move away from tackling some of those issues that were, were tackled uh, in the Pertwee era. Yes, I think, you know, if you ask Barry Letts what he was trying to do, he would say, make a good TV program and maybe educate viewers along the way. Ask Hinchcliffe and Holmes what they're trying to do, and we all know the answer is scare the buggers to death. <laughs> so you're back, I think, much like the Trout era to just let's just have monsters, classic fiction woven in, and Tom being Tom. Yep. And Hinchcliffe was a young man. I don't think he was. I don't think. I mean, I've never seen anything remotely political come out of Hinchcliffe's production. Um, even his serialisation of Na- the history of Nancy Astor, the biography of Nancy Astor was a very flat and dry interpretation of her lifestyle. You know. Even dealing with the Clevedon set, he does that with a very poe face and a very straight back. Mm-hmm. So I don't think Hinchcliffe was political animal at all. And I don't think that the Hinchcliffe era is much of a political animal at all, other than the bits that Holmes occasionally throws in in his own writing. Okay. Well, let's talk about what Holmes throws in. Um, you earlier made, uh, when we discussed the Time Lords in, in the War Games... Uh, famously, they are depicted uh, in Deadly Assassin as uh, less Olympian and more uh, in the gutter in terms yes. of what they're prepared to do. Uh, skullduggery, I think, is the word I was looking for. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I, I, there's, there's absolutely no doubt that's the case. And, you know, the Deadly Assassin has some very direct um, critiques of society at that time. Um, Runcible giving the commentary on, you know, the Time Lord election in this David Dimbleby, you know, very serious, yeah. reverent to tones, is very clearly a dig at that. You actually have, I think, possibly in Classic Who, the only direct politically satirical line where they make mention of the President's resignation honours list, which is actually a direct reference to Harold Wilson's infamously dubious resignation honours list. Um, when he resigned as Prime Minister. So I think it's the only time in the whole of Who that there's an actual politically satirical dig in the show. And, you know, you watch it now, no one will pick it up. But it would have been picked up at the time. But yes, you know, you have Barusa adjusting the truth to make Goth look like a hero, which is a very aware um, telling of of society. And I, I don't think it doesn't match the war games. In the war games, you're seeing the government and the judges from the front. Yes. When you go into closed rooms, you get to see the, the other side of that, and that's what we yes. do in The Assassin. We see the other side of You that. see the sausage being made. You basically. see the sausage being made, yeah. And um, it's, it's a very interesting one. And what's particularly interesting is that Holmes has actually said that he was actually thinking more of universities than churches or governments. That's why you get cardinals 
um, oh sorry, chancellors more than anything. That's why you get the different chapters in the colleges. He's actually thinking of a university rather than a government. But obviously those influences come in. But Assassin does stand out, I think, in Hitchcliffe years. It, it's a very different story to a lot of the others they tell. Mm, very much so. Holmes obviously goes on later to write The Sunmakers, which yes. is probably more about um, his uh, disagreement with his tax bill more than anything else. <laughs> but, um, it, 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 I mean, taxes at the heart of government, I suppose. Is there anything that we can say, or you can say about that, the story itself? I think that if you try and look for too much meaning in The Sunmakers, you're going to struggle. It's a story about taxation. Yes, I think that Holmes probably was in a very bad mood with... Um, the whatever the British version of the tax office was internal revenue internal uh, revenue that's the one uh, Her Majesty's Treasury yes <laughs> um, but you know the, uh, Holmes is brilliant because he just takes that idea and he has a few lovely little quibs particularly at the start you know so taxes are like paying tributes to you know gods yes but paying taxes is much more painful <laughs> <laughs> you know he has those wonderful little lines that as an adult you can laugh at as a kid you just sort of Oh, yeah, that's funny, <laughs> whatever. But then he gets on with telling a good story. And I don't think, you know, the gatherer is a particular allegory of any institutional person. I don't think the collector is an allegory of any institutional person. He's just gone, well, let's take this to the extreme. Let's throw some aliens in it. The doctor comes in and messes the whole thing up and tells a damn good story. And Holmes, I think, is one person who would never let the message get in the way of a good story, arguably with the exception of the two doctors where his desire to suddenly tell a vegetarian story is done without any subtlety whatsoever. Very, very uh, unironically ham-fistedly. Yeah, yeah. And, and there's probably a reason why it's Two Doctors is rated as a very poor example of Holmes's work. Mm. Now, this period, the mid-70s, uh, is where it all turns pear-shaped for Britain, isn't it? I mean, we've got the yes. three-day week, we've got strikes. I, I recall that the Britain had to go cap-in-hand to the World Bank for a loan. Or was the IMF? I can't the, remember. The IMF, yeah. The IMF. So... Is any of that, because for, for a nation that was an empire, a behemoth that destroyed the world, to be reduced to that, is, is any of that reflected in the show? Or I mean, aside from production problems and rampant inflation and all that sort of thing, do you think? Or is it, is it just merrily they go on? I think that you could make an argument, and I don't know if I can back this up, that in an era that you know, the, the public service, the civil service at the time described as the management of decline, Tom Baker emerges and you can just see that you know what we're not an empire anymore let's just have fun and I don't know whether it's purely coincidence that Tom's greatest excesses happened at that time or whether it's just that Tom was there but I guess though it, it, I mean you can't separate it from the production because at a time where regularly Doctor Who was threatened because of strikes to the point that Sharda was not made because of strikes to the point where inflation was so rampant that whose budget was just, you know, worth so much less mm. indirect buying power. When you see that on the screen, you, you see the Williams era struggling to pay its bills. You see it struggling to get the show made. And that, that has to steep into the, into the show. It just has to. But uh, oddly enough, it's not a very cynical show at that point, is it? No, but, you know, that's Britain. You know, carry yeah. on, basically. Carry on, carrying on, yeah. Yeah, exactly. All right, so um, I think we probably can move on, say, to the early J&T era. Can we jump into the 80s now, or is it...? Well, absolutely. Um, we can probably jump very quickly past the 80s, because 
you know, I say that Hinchcliffe wasn't particularly political. J&T was anti-political. He, he was desperate to keep politics away from the show. Mm. Um, is, was that just because of him personally, or is he just... Do you know? Or? I, 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 I don't know, but I suspect that... Look, whatever else you say about J&T, he had the survival of the show as his number one priority. I think he was always aware taking over a show in the 18th year. Every year was a... Bonus. A bonus, yeah. And so the idea that... And also you're now into a period where Thatcher is Prime Minister Mm. and you start to see that breakdown between the BBC and the establishment, or at least the Conservative establishment, in that the the Thatcher government is now actively looking at the BBC as being potentially biased. You know, this is the era where you have that episode of Yes, Prime Minister, where... um, I think it's Yes, Minister, actually, where the whole last third is Humphrey and um, Hacker confronting the Director-General of the BBC with... You know, the photos of the BBC directors at Ascot and Lords with drinks in the hand and ladies of uh, reasonable repute. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and the, you know, the director general, oh, you know, we can't be seen to give in to government pressure and then giving in to government pressure. When, yes, ministry is satirising that, you can see what the way that the relationship has changed. And I think J&T would be looking at all that flying across the sixth floor of the BBC and going, I want no part of that. I want to be outside this radar. It's one thing to have Mary Whitehouse come at you and say the show's too violent and sexy because that gets people to turn on. Oh, what's this violent and sexy show I want to watch? Um, having the Conservative government who pulls the purse strings coming after you is, I think, something that JNT really didn't want to happen. No. And at the end of the day, he was a showman. He didn't want to tell heavy moral stories. He just wanted to tell fun, glitzy stories. He just wanted to bring entertainment to the masses. Absolutely. And the 80s is a, is a, is a fascinating time isn't it? I mean, the Cold War turns very cold and very dark and very bleak. I mean, this is the era of shows like um, the, the Day After and Threads, um, mm. and, and, and there's the, the rise of um, you know anti-nuclear, uh, well anti-nukes basically in, in Britain and, and all that sort of thing. But you see, sto- you do say what does sneak stories through like the uh, um, Warriors of the, the Deep, deep. yeah, um, and that sort of embraces that. So I mean, it, it, can we? Granted, what you said before about JNT, is there anything of that particular era that seeps in, especially in the early 80s? I, I think that some of that sort of, um, again, that, that cutthroat capitalist environment cuts through into some of Saywood's work. Mm-hmm. I mean, Saywood is a very Darwinist writer. He, he likes his strong characters to survive, his weak characters to be slaughtered in as blood-curdling and graphic a manner as possible. <laughs> very much. Um, you know, that is, that is a reflection of that era. What Warriors of the Deep clearly is taking the Cold War and assuming it's going to continue for another hundred years. And, and that is itself an interesting idea that in the 60s, as we said, they're going, look, the Cold War will be over, we'll all be international friends. In the 80s, they're going, not 100 years' time, nothing will change. Yeah. And that, yeah, you know, the show reflects the era. Yes, I was very... I mean, I, when I was younger, I, I watched uh, The Day After on, on television and... Uh, when you're, you know, twelve or thirteen, and, and are confronted with those images, uh, it's very bleak. It's very striking. It's very up- upsetting. And even watching it a few years ago, you just sort of, it took you back to that mindset because I can remember, you know, the, the, the clock being close to midnight and all that mm-hmm. sort of thing. And and uh, Reagan, you know, being more overt in, in, in the American confrontation with the Soviets. Um, now there you go again. <laughs> But as you say, I mean, the the, the emphasis there was on uh, more on entertainment more than anything else, bringing entertainment to the people. It, it, it was, but but again, 
you know, the, the production reflects a, a richer and glitzier time. Mm. I mean, the, Britain, certainly, and the world to a lesser extent, went through quite a boon in the 80s. And you start to see that, that glitz reflected in what James he makes. Well, there was the, the, the Big Bang in, in the City of London uh, where a lot of uh, regulations were swept away and, and that allowed great economic change to come to Britain. Yeah, absolutely, but it also spelled the end of J&T. Well, oh well, you know, these things happen. But before the end of J&T uh, rolled around, uh, there are a couple of stories uh, that you've pointed out that are... I mean, Cardinal comes along and... Uh, it is a bit more political, isn't it? Well, Carmel has said that he had the, 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 the desire to bring down government. You know, he actually wanted to use Doctor Who to achieve the end of Thatcherism. Revolution. Yeah. Now, that generally doesn't end well. I mean, Spitting Image tried it for about 20 years and never succeeded. So the, the power for television and satire to bring down a government uh, is very, very limited. What must the scriptwriters and directors think of their audience if they're not inspired enough to rise up uh, through their well, best efforts? Well, <laughs> that's, but perhaps, that's right. perhaps um, the audience is quite happy with the, the way the world is at that time. Well, at the end of the day, we live in a democracy, and you know, Reagan won two elections, Thatcher won three. It's obviously what the people wanted. Well, yes. Or at least enough of them to, to, to win. I am. Um, in, in doing some research for this, I, I was looking at the Falklands War just a little bit and, um, and, uh, and the role of Pinochet uh, tangentially. And I'm amused and I'm amused that the left in Britain, the, the loathing for Thatcher was so deep that they, you know, quite happy to celebrate her death. But Pinochet was at that, you know, was a contemporary. Yes. People were saying that Thatcher was a, a, a monster and was destroying Britain. But no, no commentary on um, no commentary on Pinochet really. It, and it's interesting because that that segues into um, the point I was going to make about the Happiness Patrol, which is again a, an unusually political animal. Um, in that it was originally written as a critique of Thatcherism, then they pulled it back to not be so much, and then Sheila Hancock. Yes. Yes, Sheila Hancock makes the decision herself that she is going to play Helena as Thatcher. And, you know, Joseph C. is very clearly Dennis. Um, the problem is, though, the script doesn't really back it up. A and the world of Terra Alpha that you see is actually a lot more the world of a Pinochet-style government, which is, on the surface, quite genteel, dealing with the Western world, but under the surface, people are being disappeared. And there's some quite horrific stuff going on. That's the world of Terra Alpha. And so to call it... a an attack on Thatcherism I think actually misses the point now Happiness Patrol could have begun be much more of it I think you can probably see in the scripts the, the leftovers of it the stuff about um, the sugar factories that they talk about in part 3 you know, being overthrown you could imagine that for example being an allegory of the coal mines and, and the whole business that was really only just uh, coming to an end at the time Cartwell took over so I think I think the Happiness Patrol could have been a lot more political than it ended up being. But it's still kind of fun to watch Sheila Hancock do her <laughs> best. You know, Thatcher, you know, families are very important. <laughs> it's, it's, it's fun to watch. Um, the other story that I'll mention would be Paradise Towers, which, although it has some production issues, I think is an incredibly clever script. And Carmel has actually taught... Carmel uses that as an allegory of where society's going and the breakdown of our society. You see that in the Happiness Patrol. People are looking out for themselves. People are not trusting of authority. The authority figures are shown to be on the take, albeit to a 
steaming great monster in the basement <laughs> rather than anything else. But but you can you can see the breakdown of society that Cartmel believed he was watching in Paradise Towers. Again, as a kid, you don't see that. No. But as an adult, I think it comes across as a really lovely piece of eighties television. And uh, before uh, the series uh, was shut down in '89, uh, Doctor Who returns to the Daleks, returns to the Daleks back in 1963 with Remembrance of the Daleks. Now, there's Mm. a number of themes and counterpoints that you see in Remembrance versus the Daleks. Do you care to uh, just comment on that? Look, obviously, uh, Ben Aronovich takes the fascist Daleks and updates them to be not the anti-Semitic racism of the 40s and 30s, but the more brutal racism that Britain was confronting, or is confronting, um, in the 90s and today. And so you see those race relations paralleled very, very clearly. And, you know, giving Sergeant Mike Smith the role of being a good guy for two and a half or three episodes, and then suddenly showing to be this actually quite abhorrently racist figure, was a very brave move on the production team. And I think it shows just how insidious these Dalek-like views of race and society actually can be and that's I think another reason why Remembrance apart from being a cracking story stands up as something kind of worthwhile and obviously you know Cartman inserted the famous no coloured sign that Ace discovers and part of the message there is Ace going I can't believe that somebody would be this overt but the other half of the message is Ace comes from a society that you couldn't put a no coloured window up on your door but that doesn't mean that the racism is gone. Mm. No, that's a fair point. So I'll just before we go to the the, the, the new series era, it's interesting that writers like Cornell um, during the nineties, you see writers like Cornell and RTD, they they pick up on the themes of the eighties in in their writing. You see Cornell with No Future, you see RTD with Damaged Goods. So there, I mean, there is an impact in the 80s that, that moves through into the 90s, isn't there? With, yeah. with the New Adventures. Yeah, absolutely. Books. I mean, one of the one of the cliches of the New Adventures is the evil, greedy, multi-corporate corporation. And, and, and they became the bad guy of the 90s. Yeah. Um, another example is the BBV production... Uh, Zero Imperative. The Zero Imperative, thank you very much. Or the Airzone Solution. That's right, yeah. Airzone Solution. The Airzone Solution, thank you. Um... That is such a product of about 1994 yeah. that it is, you could carbon date it. <laughs> you know, it, it is, it is just this, this terror of pollution unchained and people walking around in um, anti-pollution masks and, and a real fear that, you know, corporate, I mean, I, I mean the, the spoilers if you haven't seen this 30 years on guys, but um, there's a solution that the, the ending is that the, companies that are polluting actually give up with trying to stop pollution because it's too profitable so they create gills on humanity so that humanity can just breathe mm. carbon dioxide which is a science fiction twist but it's so 90s yeah so 90s yeah now watching watching the x-files which is very much a product of the 1990s there there is that that element there that runs right through it the, the, the secret yeah. organizations or large organizations crushing little men underneath for, for, for profit and and, and, and and power and that sort of thing yeah, that's right. And look, you know, then we did have the GFC. So they weren't entirely wrong. No, no. Um, I, I don't think corporations were quite as evil as they thought, but they were as greedy as we thought. Cavalier. Cavalier, that's a good 
Good, good. Ha- having good watched uh, recently The Big Short uh, with my wife. Um, yes, I saw there, that. There is a degree of uh, yes cavalierness. It, uh, it made me thankful for every hoop I had to jump through to get my mortgage. <laughs> <laughs> Back in, uh, was it 2004, much to our surprise, Doctor Who came back, uh, headed yeah. by Russell T Davies. Um, I, I didn't believe it. Suddenly, I was caught over to someone's house and they were watching Doctor Who. <laughs> I wonder how they obtained that uh, <laughs> episode. Now, I suppose Russell T Davies, uh, at that point, was identified with um, stuff like Queer as Folk. It's certainly what he made his name in, yeah. Yes. So, when he, with his approach to Doctor Who, did he take... Uh, an overt political stance, do you think? or I, I don't think he took an overt political stance because, again, he is first and foremost an entertainer. However, there is no doubt that more than perhaps any producer, with the possible exception of Let's, Davies is a political animal. He, he's involved in the political sphere, scene. He got his MBE for, in part, political activism. So there's no doubt that politics is a part of his makeup, And... There are threads of that that you can see through his era. I don't think you can deny that. So let's let's look at you know his his era then. Um, I mean stories like the Unquiet Dead, in hindsight, have been have people have claimed that there's a definite message there, um, one that they don't particularly like. No, well I mean famously Mad Larry Miles um, <laughs> had quite a famous rant yes. about that and, and and overt or directly called the production team, you know xenophobic and racist yes I don't think at all and this is maybe the danger of looking into shows and you know I'm always reminded whenever you try and look for messages and stuff I'm reminded of the story of John Lennon when he heard that um, teachers around Britain in the 60s were using Beatles songs for text analysis and he's sitting there going there, there is no analysis there is a song I know I'll write I am the walrus <laughs> analyse that you bastards yes. <laughs> You know, just to prove that it's all a nonsense. So I think that this is an example of somebody's looking for metatextual mm-hmm. context that simply wasn't there. Gaddis wrote a story about alien invasion. The fact that it paralleled some of the debate about immigration at the time, I believe, you know, take Gaddis and Davies at the word, was completely coincidental. But you look for it and it can be found that's the danger of looking for these things and that's the danger of sometimes tackling these topics. You'll just find what you're searching for. Yeah, absolutely. And perhaps that, like our discussion of the Hartnell years, if you're looking for political influence that isn't there, mm-hmm. you'll find stuff that you shouldn't find. Now, you say that uh, Davies um, was known for his political uh, interests or, or, or work or background. What do you think of his depiction of politics in Doctor Who? I, I actually have to say I find it very unsophisticated. I might almost use the term undergraduate, in that he puts in little political digs or references or allegories that actually don't quite work or that show a lack of understanding of how it works. In simple terms, the the role he has of the president-elect of the US in end of... Last of the Time Lords. Yeah. That that one. You know, that's... The the president-elect doesn't have the power that he showed. The president-elect's a no-one until he's Mm. president. Yes. So that shows lack of sophistication of the system. Um, the way that Harriet Jones is brought down as Prime Minister, you know, the, the whisper, doesn't she look tired? I mean, that's just nonsense. Yeah. The, first of all, the idea that her dedicated staffer would leak that is itself ridiculous. The idea that the Cabinet would throw her out because some crazy dude in a bad jacket whispered <laughs> something to someone, <laughs> it's just nonsense. 
I know some fans love it and they, they see that as the Doctor sort of, you know, being a little bit magical and powerful, but I just think it falls really flat. And it just says to me that the writer isn't as clever as he perhaps is trying to be. Is he, is he just trying to be populist? Yeah, look, maybe he is. I don't know, because you, you have some quite overt takings. I think, you know, we, we mentioned I can only think of one really directly political, satirical moment in Classic Who. You get several of them in, in, in Davies' era. Um, the first and probably the most obvious is the reference to um, in uh, Aliens of London or World War Three, where you know they mentioned that they could fire off the weapons in 30 minutes' notice, which is almost a direct quote from the famous doctored Alistair Campbell um, dossier about weapons of mass destruction. So that's a very clear dig at Tony Blair. Uh, and that, that show also has uh, various references. You know, Harriet Jones says she's not in with the pink Prime Minister because she's not one of the babes being referenced to Tony, you know, Blair's babes at the time and all that. So Russell is actively having digs at the Blair government at the time. Is he taking that approach, the more populist approach, because people are more switched on or uh, angered by politics in that era? Look, it might be, but that's a double-edged sword because half the people watching will agree with you and half the people won't. So you actually can kind of piss off an audience going down that path if you do it as overtly as he does. I think it's just Davy's nature. I think he, he is a political creature. Mm-hmm. He's an activist, and that, that comes through. And that's, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but he's unusual for whose history. Mm-hmm. And it does tarnish some of these stories as just being a little bit unsophisticated. And the worst example, if you want to go there, is, of course, the Christmas invasion, where uh, I'm, I don't think there's any doubt Davies is trying to give an allegory of the sinking of the Belgrano in the Falklands War. It is, however, such a simply mistaken allegory. It, it takes the revisionist anti-Thatcher history of the Falklands and puts that on the screen, which is that, you know, she was some sort of maniacal warlord who sunk a, you know, ship on the run, when the truth was that within the laws of warfare and the fact that that ship was after the indefatigable and the Hermes and, you know, even the Argentine generals had gone, it was fair game. It was... It was you know, it was it was yeah. the theatre of war, and she sunk an enemy ship. Now, we're not endorsing that warfare is necessarily the answer, but I think if ever there was a case of having to go to battle for something, the Falklands was it. You know, British citizens suddenly found themselves under a fairly nasty military junta. Military junta. You, you, you kind of negotiate that. You can't negotiate that away. No. And in that, lives are going to be tragically lost. It's war. It's people. it's, it's, it's just war. simply war. So for, for Davies to sort of throw the Belgrano revisionism into the show, I actually think quite undermines him. Because it doesn't make him look clever, it makes him look partisan and foolish. Mm-hmm. And wrong. And wrong. And, and, which is, you know, more than anything else. You, you don't want to get your history wrong, especially when you're trying to make a point. Yeah. For the rest of his era, does he does he sort of... I mean, we, we, we look at stories like The Long Game, which talks about the evils of corporatism and all that sort of thing. Yeah. There's well, elements in the, in the last story of that particular season where the Daleks are basically running this massive this corporation and all well, that sort of thing. Well, it's interesting. We, we spoke about how in the 90s, pollution and corporatism was the, 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 the big bad. Um, I think for the current era, the news corporations, and, you know, they're the big bad now. People who are controlling the news, manipulating the news watching what you buy online so they can sell you advertising, all that sort of thing. I think that, that is the big bad of today. Mm. And so you see that come through in Davies' work. I think it is quite 
effective and quite subtle. You can watch the long game as a kid and not get what's happening. But if you know a little bit, about it, oh, yeah, okay, he's having a little bit of a dig at that. That's quite interesting. And that's a reflection for that. And in 30 years' time, when you know somebody's making 72 to Doomsday... Um, they, <laughs> it won't be me. <laughs> when you've had it on your daughters. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. It's like an episode of The Goodies. Yes. <laughs> um, uh, you know, when, when, when people in 30 years' time are analysing the Davies era, I think they will sit there and go, look, this is a nice reflection of what Britain was scared mm-hmm. of at the time. They were scared of media manipulation. They were scared of political manipulation. Uh, in the same way that we're doing with, you know, the Hartwell years or the Pertwee years. And it's interesting that even 10 years later, we, we talk about privacy and all that sort of thing, online privacy and electronic privacy. And more and more people are willing to give up that privacy, willing to give up that information that the, that the corporations want, you know, to fund their profits in terms of stuff like Facebook or Twitter. You, you just, yes. Amazon, you just give that up, basically. And people do that without any qualms. There, there might be an interesting story in that. You know, look, look, there is. And, you know, then we get on Amazon a week later and see the recommendations and go, isn't it great we live in a society where it's, making my life so much easier. The books I want to buy are there without me even thinking about it. Exactly. Can we leave Russell T Davies now in the dustbin of history? Or? Um, I, th- I think the one thing we do need to reflect on is what some fans have perhaps in a loaded way called the gay agenda. Oh, yes. And I don't use it remotely in that loaded way. I think that Davies is an activist and you can parallel his mention of a gay rights agenda with Let's's ecological agenda. It's not pervasive, but it's there to be seen if you want to be seen. Subtle things like, I mean, the captain, the, the character of Jack Harkness clearly is a, a reference to, you know, what we can have non-heterosexual characters in Doctor Who, and they can actually be the hero. The fact that there's that, that reference to that couple in Gridlock being yes. married, you know, which is, we're not sisters, we're married, you know, it, it's just a line, it gets a laugh, but it just, again, it puts it in there. And, and again, you've got gay characters in the story if you want to see them. I mean, Tommy in The Idiot's Lantern is not necessarily gay, but it is hinted at that he is, and that's part of the trouble in the relationship between him and his father. Um, Andrew Garfield's character in Evolution of the Daleks, there's a hint that he could be gay. It's just a little hint there so that if you're looking for that sort of um, theme, it's there to be found, it's there to relate to, if that is for you, or, or it can be completely missed. In the same way, the ecological agenda of Barry Letts was there to be seen or ignored, depending on what you wanted to see. You know, Davey's got his MBE partly for his gay rights activism. The idea that it wouldn't be mentioned in his Who is quite ridiculous, but I don't think it undermines his Who. If anything, I think it actually perhaps strengthens it a little bit. And again, if we look back at his era in 30 years' time, I wonder if people will even notice it maybe as a historical artefact of where the where gay rights were in 2005 or 6. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Just on that, the the, the so-called, you know, gay agenda that um, people comment on, if you, at that time, if you were to go onto forums, you would see fans, and I suppose it sort of mimics where society was and is uh, on gay rights, the, the so-called gay agenda, people were attacking Davies for it, that they re- resented having some mild comments or characters being forced down their throat. Is there anything to say about fans and their attitude to that uh, about a show that is, in its essence, progressive uh, in its outlook? I think that it is a reflection not in the fact that it was political, but in the fact that it was sexual. And Doctor Who has been an incredibly 
sexless show outside of the Hartnell era, which is actually quite overtly sexual and violent in many ways. Outside of that, who was a famously sexless show? You know, relationships that were shown were incredibly chaste. Uh, There certainly were never any overtly or openly homosexual characters in there. There actually weren't really many heterosexual characters in there. It was a sexless show. So I think the pushback was less to do with the fact that it was political as it was to do with suddenly characters were showing sexuality. And it was wrapped up, I think, in part with the fact that suddenly companions had a crush on the Doctor. Suddenly the Doctor was kissing his companions. Sigh. (laughs) (laughs) That wasn't planned. No, that wasn't planned. (laughs) It comes from the heart, people. (laughs) That's right. Um, So, yeah, if you've you've grown up with Who being a sexless show and you you like that, you would be worried to see any sexualisation of it. Maybe that does come in with a homophobic sense in some people. I don't know. I hope not. Uh, but I think that's that's kind of where it is, and 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 this fear that eventually we'll actually see the sexualization of the Doctor himself. I think that a lot of fans, particularly of our vintage, would be very uncomfortable with the sexualization of the Doctor. So maybe they'll be worried that was the thin end of the wedge. Okay, fair enough. I I, I hope I'm putting the most positive spin on that I can. Yes, it's. Uh Makes for a happier life if you can put a happy spin on things. Well, they're out in the internet world. I'm never going to meet them. Well, no, that's right. Uh, and then, um, so Russell T Davies moves on to greener pastures, and um, Stephen Moffat, the almost departed Stephen Moffat, yes, enters the scene now. I, I think it's fair to say that whilst, if you look at something like Press Gang, Moffat can be a little bit political. Mo- Moffat in Press Gang absolutely pushes causes. Yes, you know there is. That, that two-part where he deals with drug abuse and selling mm-hmm. solvents to kids. There's the one that deals with youth suicide. Uh, there's the one that deals with you know, gun violence. You know, he puts a paraplegic character into a show, which I think, I don't know if it was the first, but it would have been absolutely one of the first. So Moffat absolutely pushes causes in Press Gang, and mm-hmm. I think Press Gang stands out the better for it. But in Doctor Who, his approach to Doctor Who more or less abandons that? The idea of a cause, do you think? I I, I think so. I think others have said, I think correctly, that Moffat goes more into the tele-fantasy than the science fiction. I I don't think that he would deny that. And if you go into the realms of fantasy, to quote Captain Manorang, you are in less in touch, therefore, with reality, so there's less space to push an agenda. Um... He occasionally throws in a couple of lines. There's a bit of Scottish nationalism comes into um, a few things, like the fact that Scotland's its own spaceship by... Oh, yes. Space uh, Below. Space Whale, whatever. Beast Below, that's it, yep. Yeah, that, that comes in there. But otherwise, I think, again, Moffat is telling, an, generally, an otherworldly story. So there's really not much room for contemporary political reflection in that. So given that... It, I suppose it all it stands out even more where he does tackle that, or the show at least does tackle yes. that with the Zygon invasion slash inversion. Yes. So much so that it's a bit like a slap in the face, isn't it? Yeah, it, it really it really does feel like it, and um, the danger with doing anything involving a political message is that some of the audience are going to feel slapped, and I know personally when you know, I listened to that message, I've gone, this is utterly ridiculous. And I actually felt quite angry about it, that this show was trying to preach to me 
a message that I thought was quite naive. I'm not saying if I'm, I'm right and wrong, but I doubt that I'm the only one in an audience of however many million across the world that would have felt that way. However, as an academic point, it's fascinating to contrast Ian's there are some things worth fighting for speech in the Daleks with just sit down and talk no matter what in the Zygon story. Uh, You know, as a piece of text, it's fascinating. Uh, But you're right, it stands out really, really, really strangely in the Moffat era. And, I mean, you look at Moffat, he's a child of the 80s and the 90s. And you look at Nation, there's a child of the 30s and the 40s. And a person's history, it's, it's, it's not, no surprise, I'm not saying anything that's new, that your, your background will inform what you do, what you say, how you, yes. how you bring something to the screen. So maybe Moffat has, maybe Moffat has supped at a particular, you know, a, a pacifistic drink or outlook. Well, and the other thing is how much of it was Moffat and how much of it was simply the writer. I think, personally, obviously, I, I think that when you get the Doctor being the centre of attention with a massive speech like that for two or three, what felt like two or three minutes. Yes. I, and, and, and having Moffat as the showrunner, I, if, if I personally think that that speech has got Moffat's fingerprints all over it. Okay. It, 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 might, it might be, uh, you know, one out in terms of his entire era, but I think that that it, it has Moffat all over it. Yeah, look, look, you, you could well be right, and I, I guess until um, Richard Marsden writes the tell-all book of the Moffat era, which I am so looking forward to oh, one yes. day. <laughs> I'm so looking forward to. Until we get that book, we won't know for sure. No, that's true. Uh, but we do know that it was there. It, it was a reflection of a very real stream of thinking, particularly in British consciousness. Um, you know, it's not, it's, it's not a random thing. There's a very strong feeling in British political consciousness about that. Probably more so than anywhere else, certainly in America or here. So I see where it comes from. I just think that putting it into the show so unsubtly, mm. and as I keep saying, in the mouth of the Doctor... Yeah was just a little bit... It was a bridge too far. And they could have... I, as I said to you in the Christmas episode, I think they could have told a message of toleration and inclusion mm-hmm. so much better with the setup they had in that story. And I think I think they really missed an opportunity. Is it is it the Doctor is Jeremy Cor- Corbyn? Ooh. Is, that, is that too near the knuckle? Are we? <laughs> it, I won't say that it necessarily is, but it is Doctor Who being made in an era where Jeremy Corbyn can be elected leader of the Labour Party. You know, the fact that Jeremy Corbyn is the leader of a mainstream party shows how mainstream that sphere of thinking is. So it's inevitable that it's going to sleep into the show somewhere. It's just, I think, a shame that it was done so overtly. Is, is Jeremy Corbyn reflective of the mainstream, or is Jeremy Corbyn reflective of a hysteria amongst a fringe of the Labour Party that was more motivated and better organised. I think that Corbyn is a reflection of a stream of society that has been brought into the mainstream because of the nuances of the Labour leadership process. In in the same way that Trump is a very different stream of a society in America that because of the intricacies of the nomination process has been brought into the mainstream by a minority. Uh, and just to get really political, you can see the mainstreaming of fringe groups in Europe at the moment, the, the Le Pens in France, yes. and, and, and the Orbans, I think, in Poland, or yes. Hungary, I'm not quite sure. You, you can see that the, the, 
getting really political here, but the disaffection that, that mainstream people are feeling, that they're feeling that their, their lifestyles are under pressure, that their wages are under pressure, that there's more insecurity, that there's no real future for their children in terms of employment, that they've turned their backs on the elites and are more willing to at least entertain the idea of a Marine Le Pen as president of France. I, I think that... Or a President Trump. Or a President Trump. Look, absolutely. I think that when successive governments have struggled, after, after a long period of plenty, you get successive governments struggling in a period of less. The disillusioned look for an alternative. We, we had the same thing in Australia in the late 90s with Hanson. You know, one nation, which was an overtly xenophobic, populist movement, got 25% of the vote in Queensland and 10% of the vote in our national election in 98. You know, we've, we've lived through this as Australia and we've mm. moved on from it. I think that they're having their Hanson moment. Which is quite scary for us who, you know, thought we'd left it all behind. Uh, yes. Go, yes. go listen to um, Midnight Oil's uh, Redneck Wonderland and remember what it was like. <laughs> Time to take a stand, Redneck Wonderland. Just before we wrap up, Dave, um, is there anything you want to say about how TV shows in a modern context depict politics, discuss politics? Yeah, look, thanks, Rob. It's, it's interesting being an insider watching some of these shows now and seeing which work and which don't. Um, yes, Minister still stands out as one that, when I was in the public service, I lived. I, I actually remember a meeting when my director came down and said, David, um, the, the Minister would like a particular policy um, implemented. And I've just started to think, okay, how can I do this? So what I need you to do is write a three-page memo as to why he can't. <laughs> and I, I suddenly found myself writing the, the, the Sir Humphrey memo. Well, well, Minister, there are legislative problems that would require an amendment to the law. You know, so, you know, even if we wanted to, we can't do this. But of, obviously, yes, Minister is satirised quite heavily. The thick of it, I think, is perhaps more reflective of British politics than our politics. Uh, partly because Australians just... You know, a Malcolm Tucker figure in Australia would just be told where to go very quickly, I yes. think. Although you do see it from time to time. If you really want to know about modern politics, I can actually recommend go check out Matt Smith in Party Animals. Okay. I think that's a series that shows the, the tremendous highs of working in politics and the tremendous lows of working in politics. You know, one moment you're changing the world and actually making a real difference. The next moment it's internal party politics battering you. One moment you're at a wonderful boardroom, luncheon with you know, high flyers the next year, grubbing around trying to make something happen yeah. um, and you know, working 20 hours a day. It's a very, very good series, but I think that the, 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 the final point I'll perhaps mention is that because so many people now think they understand the inside of politics, with shows like The Thick of It, um, The Hollow Men in Australia, which was a very good show, they can, perhaps sometimes are overly cynical about what's happening. And that can sometimes be a bit sad because people assume the worst of a system that's trying to do the best. And on that point, I'd like to thank you, Dave, very much for hosting me and contributing really smartly and intelligently to the discussion. Um, thanks very much. No, my, my pleasure. It's, um, it's interesting to talk about Doctor Who in such an um, academic fashion, but just to balance it all out when you leave, I'm going to put the chase back on. And Yes, he had the chase on when I was here, and it was, uh, yes, it's, it's talking cheese, isn't it? And uh, to go from the sublime to the ridiculous, here's a letter from Sharak Jizz.
dear doomsdayers, I have been listening to your last few podcasts. They were quite good. I thought I would send you my feelings about last season, which I thought was very good. It all started with The Magic Man and Prentice Handcock, which is a new double act which features Stavros as the Magic Man. Stavros was having problems with his hand. I know all about this as my hand often gets tired. Anyway, Stavros sent a sneaky man to find the doctor and he found him when he was middle-aged along with the, the lovely Clara, who makes me go all funny. And also the master, who is now a lady and has less of a beardy. The doctor was messing around with millinery stuff and thought he was going to snuff it, so they all went to Scario to see Stavros, who tricked the doctor into making his hand better. If he'd just left it a while, it probably would have been okay. That's what I find. However, the doctor tricked Stavros and made all the Dalek toilets come to life, so Scario became even scarier, and, and all the poo went on the rampage. My favourite bit of this was when the Master had tied Clara up. I would like to do that, but then I could touch her everywhere. <laughs> I'm back now. I, I just had to do something. The next story was called Under Ricky Lake and Before Gerald Flood, and was all about ghosties. Ghosties were trying to save a big stick man called Fisher Price, and on the base, all the girls wore shorts, which made me happy, as they had nice legs. It was on after Strictly Coming Dancing, which I like very, very much, as all the girls on it are very nice and, and have lovely legs too. <laughs> the girls on the base didn't do much dancing, though, and Tess and Claudia weren't there either, which was a shame. In the end, the doctor put his watch back and tricked Fisher Price so that he was drowned by wet. Clara got wet as well, which was my favourite bit. <laughs> the next story was called The Lady Garden That Got Died and was about a pretty girl from Game of Throws, which is all about chair covers. She was a viking, and lots of big green things fell on them all, which has happened to me before when I had a bad clod. The doctor found some fishies and tricked the leader of the big green things so that he looked very silly, although he already looked silly, so I didn't quite understand why that worked. Sadly, Maisie Dotes died herself. Green, I assume. But the doctor took one of the big green things to a fish and chip shop and stuck one of them into her so that she went back to the normal colour and couldn't change anymore. I would have liked to stuck something into her as she was very small. It might have been okay for her, as mine is very small too. After this, we had a story with the Saigons, although they didn't do any of the songs which they usually do. This was a really good story because there were two Claras, which made me very, very happy. The Saigons were trying to stir up trouble and kept tricking people and army men to be very daft. It was very funny. The Doctor and Oz Clark saved the day and, and the Bugadier's daughter when the Doctor talked for a very long time and they all forgot what they had wanted to do in the first place, which was very clever of him. I liked the bit when Clara was in a big box. Oh, I would have got in with her and, and touched her all over. <laughs> I'm back again. My hand is quite tired, but I will carry on camping. The next story was all flimmed on camicorders and was all about sleepy, snotty monsters. Clara got trapped in another big box and there was a lot of running around. I didn't really understand it. Clara looked really hot in it, so I, I liked it a lot. <laughs> um, after this, Mary Williams came back with Rigsby, who had been in a story last year and and I think he was paid too much or something. So he was asked to come back and earn the rest of his money. He had a tata tattoo on his neck, which he didn't know what it was. I had a tata tattoo done once, after I had tried to chat up a girl in a bar, 
she turned out to have a winky. So I ran away and drank a lot of things. When I woke up, I had a tattoo. It, it was on my head, and it said, twat. But I don't remember how I got it. I asked my neighbor, but he just laughed and, and winked at me and said it suited me. Anyway, Rigby's tattoo was, was going to make him die. So Clara took it off him, and, and then she had to play a game with John Craven. And she died, and, and I was very sad. Although, at the start of the epidural, she was showing us all her nippers. It made me very, very happy. Oh, so happy, I, I cried. Um, and my hand nearly fell off. Oh, doctor was very cross, and went off for a weekend to a castle, which had another stick man. And he kept running away. In the end, after running away a lot, kept getting his hand on a wall, and, and the stick man made his face all hot and he had to go back to the start and make it better and do it all again. Anyway, after doing this about five times, he managed to break the wall and ended up back in gallery with Tony Hart from Vision Off and the lady who waved her hands about a lot because she couldn't hear, like the girl from Ricky Lake's story, who was also a bit mutton Jeff. The doctor went into a shed and made the man in charge of the gallery come to see him so that he could tell him to go away, which made me wonder why he bothered. Then he went into the cellar with Clara, which I would love to do, even though she was dead. But that didn't stop me the last time, although I got into trouble and had to promise not to do it again. Also in the cellar were funny men on smegways, and their faces kept going funny. I tried going on a smegway once, and my face went funny as well, especially after I fell off, which I did a lot. The people came to try to stop the doctor, including the old lady who called him Boy, which was funny because the doctor is very old now, and also the baldy lady who used to be a baldy man before the doctor shot him in the face. Oh, I would like to shoot Clara in the face. <coughs> I am back again. I had to do something again. My hand is now very, very, very tired. Anyway, the doctor and Clara went back to the 1960s, although they weren't in black and white. And, and Clara tricked the doctor so that he fell down and forgot things. I have tried this too, but I got banned from the chemist, and a policeman hit me very hard with a big stick. The doctor woke up in a dessert and went to an old dinner where Clara was wearing a very short skirt, and oh, I liked it so much, I think I broke my wrist. <sighs> then Clara and Macy Gray flew away in their dinner, and the doctor went to see River Snog because she is easy, and she didn't know who he was because he's now so old. But George Dawes and a very tall man helped them to run away from a funny man whose head came apart. I had that problem once, after a strictly marathon, or, or possibly a Twix. But I was put to sleep for a week and it got better. In the end, the doctor had another dinner built, but this one didn't fly away, although he stayed there with River until she agreed to do what he wanted her to do which was probably not very long, as she is so easy, and I like her very much. I hope Doctor Who comes back very soon, and Strictly as well, but Clara won't be in it. But hopefully, there will be another pretty girl, maybe even Lily, who wore some leaves, like Sinita did, or even Perry, who was in a bikini, in my favourite story ever, Planet of Fire. Oh, oh, oh I, I need to go and do something now. But I will listen to more of your podcast, and if you ever want me to come on the show, I will. Because I like the way you all talk all funny. Because you are Austrians, I think, I remain 
your friend, Sharap Jizz. just listen to another episode of 42 to Doomsday, the podcast that loves talking about Doctor Who. We'd love to hear from our listeners. Please drop us a line at 42 to Doomsday at gmail.com. We can be reached at facebook.com forward slash 42 to Doomsday. If brevity is your game, we can be found on Twitter at 42 to Doomsday. Please check out our blog, 42 to Doomsday.wordpress.com, where Mark and I occasionally have something interesting to say. Aside from iTunes, you can listen to us via Stitcher and Player FM. If you enjoyed listening to us, leave a review on iTunes. As always, thank you for listening. Have a great week. We'll speak with you again soon. Wonderland